In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today we're doing a special, extra big, extra juicy, extra long episode in honor of our one year anniversary of The Burn. And joining me today is my teammate and production assistant, Monica Haro. Welcome to The Burn, Monica. Hi, April. Hey there. So happy birthday to us. I know, right? I can't believe it's been a whole year into the podcast. That's amazing to me. It's been so a many fun stories. Ride. Yes, so much goodness. And so today, like I said a moment ago, we are doing a big episode. Instead of our usual format of hearing one story, today you and I are going to be revisiting some of our favorite episodes and guests from over the past year. My goal with this podcast has always been to bring the stories of the young breast cancer community to life, having these stories both written and read to us by the survivors themselves with the goal to spread the awareness of the healing power of storytelling around the community and inspire people to write. And if not, at least let them know that they aren't alone and that storytelling can influence their survivorship in that way. So Monica, you and I are organizing today's special around what we are calling the hard truths of being diagnosed young. Young is a state of mind, of course, but for our purposes, young refers to those diagnosed at least initially under 50. And as someone who was diagnosed at 37 and in the seven years now that I've been publishing stories from within the community, I know up close that there are some aspects of breast cancer that land differently when you're young. And I know you feel that way too. I do. Yeah. So today we're going to highlight a few of these. And what we hope is going to be an interesting discussion, an entertaining deep dive into today's young breast cancer community. So like I said, that you guys listening at home know that you aren't alone if these truths are ringing true for you as well. So in honor of today's special, our one-year anniversary, I also have a gift for all of you listening. I have put together a printable journal companion to this podcast with some of my favorite writer quotes and prompts to help you enter the page yourself. So stay to the end for more info on how to grab yours. All right, Monica, shall we jump in? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay, so let's set this up. 
there are a lot of truths that we have learned via experiencing cancer firsthand, and we could talk all day about them. But in preparation for this podcast today, you and I boiled it down to six truths. And these are the ones that we feel especially come to the surface in the writings and experiences of those diagnosed on the younger side. So I'm going to tell everyone what they are. And this is also a good place to mention that there are some topics on our list today which some listeners might be sensitive to. So I'll give you the list. And if you have little ears with you today or you are sensitive to any of these topics, you please take care of yourself as needed. So here are the six truths that we are going to dig into. The mom thing, fertility and infertility, mental health, the struggle to find your place in community, body wars, sex, and intimacy. And we're going to throw in some dark humor too, because we have come to realize that coping with cancer via dark humor is one of the hallmarks of today's younger breast cancer community. All right, Monica, I have been talking so much that I definitely want to bring you in. And we're going to start by going back to the very, very beginning of The Burn with episode two. This was Naked Narrative with Katie Murray. And I want to start here because you and I both love Katie's story. And she talks about using writing as a therapeutic tool in survivorship. So while this isn't necessarily one of the truths that we're digging into today, it's such a great place to start. So Katie was diagnosed at 40 with stage two lobular breast cancer, and we'll hear from her. Writing in the last year has cleared space around my heart and below my ribs. I breathe deeper. I have more space in my body. I can feel it. And I found where the old traumas were hiding. I didn't know before this year that that's where they lived. Mm, I just love I love Katie's voice, first of all, but yeah, me I love too. what she says there. Yeah. So tell me, Monica, tell me just what you think of when you're hearing Katie read that. It's it's resonating for me. You know, when you have something that's some some trauma that you've taken in and you're holding, and you may not be aware that you're holding it either, you know, you can go to therapy, you can talk to friends or others who've gone through a similar experience. And those are all tools, too, in processing. But with the writing, you make different connections. It's something about what's happening in the brain actually coming out through your fingertips on the keyboard or pen, however you write. And another level of processing happens. Another level of kind of connecting the dots happens. And it's it's very powerful. Oh, incredibly powerful. I'm curious, was... Was writing something that you used personally in, you know, dealing with other traumas besides cancer? Do you, was it something you turned to yourself? Yes. I've always been a creative person, an artistic person. Um, I've used creative expression with writing. I've been a writer all my life, journaling as well, and in artistic endeavors too, not just writing, but making something that travels, you know, from the brain back to the fingertips. It's a tactile activity has, has always been a thing for me. Mm -hmm. What about you? 
Oh, for sure. For sure. I used journaling early on to make sense of traumas that were happening in my childhood. And so it was really natural for me. I don't know if natural even is the right word. It it felt like necessary that I turned to writing when cancer came along too. And, you know, another thing that you and I have talked about, and I think a big reason why we both wanted to start with Katie's quote is that all of the past traumas come to the Mm -hmm. surface again, right? In the cancer diagnosis. Yes. And I think some of the coping mechanisms that have helped us deal with those things come to the surface again too. But zero people I have talked to arrive at cancer having not experienced other hard things in their life, hard truths, right? Facts. Total facts right there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. So I love when Katie just talks about this, about how writing for her clears that space. And it's something that she has used to kind of expunge some of those old traumas. And and we know it's not linear, right? Like different things come up at different times. Yeah. But, But writing is such a good tool for getting in there and making sense. It totally is. 100% agree. It's just been amazing, too, listening to this past year on The Burn, not only reading the writers' essays, but then hearing them read their own essays is like this other release or Mm -hmm. uh, a healing layer, I guess, that maybe they never intend, like when they were writing it, they were never like, I'm going to read this on a podcast out loud. And then when they do, I think think it's impactful for them. What, What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I agree. And I can say with certainty because I hear from our readers afterward that it was such a profound experience for them to not only be published and have someone legitimize their experience and put it out into the world. That's one layer. But then they have discovered that reading it out loud to an audience it brings this whole other layer of healing that is really hard to articulate. But yes, I can say they they are literally telling me that it has made a difference in their survivorship. So yeah, I just want to say everyone listening, if you haven't written your stories yet or you haven't been a guest on The Burn, I hope that you will consider reading your stories aloud. Even just reading to a loved one can really shift that story for you. Yeah, it's like, I'm always amazed at the writer's vulnerability to read it out loud and share it on a a public experience like a podcast. This is a great place to start to get into some of our truths that we want to talk about today because we have asked people in every single issue of Wildfire to get vulnerable and to get into the heart of their experience. From day one, I have been telling people it's not about the diagnosis of breast cancer. It's about what you did after that or what came after that, what experience you had when you realized you had to fold that into your life experience. And so we have stories in all of the wildfires, in all of the burn that go into this. And today we've just pulled out some some examples of those that we feel are some of these universal truths. And that's one of the things that I always am urging people to push toward with their writing as well, is finding those truths that will speak to 
anyone, regardless of whether they have experienced breast cancer or not, because there are certain truths about just living on this planet that everyone experiences. And breast cancer might just be, you know, the window dressing on that particular Mm -hmm. experience, right? That's a a good way to to describe it. Everybody has something, whether it's cancer or some other big life event thing, and and you get through whatever the thing is, and you come out on this other side. And and when if you can share what you've learned or how you've grown, I think that's pretty incredible. Yes. Well, I think we're all looking at each other, you know, human to human and wanting to know, okay, so how did you do that? How did you continue to function after that thing happened? Yeah, looking for those kernels of like, you know, little tips and hacks, or if you will. Exactly. To kind of inspire you, to give you hope. Well, that's what I think it boils down to is hope. And I think what I've always been striving to do with wildfire is show the hope that comes from just seeing that someone else is living a shared experience. And maybe mm-hmm. they're a few steps ahead of you, or you you get you know, the courage to write your story and write it for someone who's a few steps behind. But anytime we can show through storytelling, someone has taken a a diagnosis of any stage of breast cancer, taken that diagnosis and then lived one day past that Mm -hmm. and then another day past that. And the fact that there can still be joy, right? Mm -hmm. Still be happiness, still be laughter. That's, that's the magic of the storytelling, I think. Yeah. You know, just kind of listening to you talk about this, because I hear you talk about this subject a lot, and you and I have conversations probably a couple times a month about about these things. I'm curious what it's been like for you to have the podcast going a year now. When when I came on board the Wildfire team, you started doing these live events, right, where subscribers could come to like a, a Zoom party and listen to some of the readers from whatever issue had just been released. And and you were finding that that was a really powerful thing. And I think that was in, was that in late 2020, summer 2020, started doing that? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then what made you want to do the podcast? What made you want to roll into that? Can we, can we go off topic with this for a minute? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's um, really important, though, because yeah. it's kind of like what, what, it's just another conduit for the storytelling. Well, exactly. I think what I learned through doing those live events was the power of listening to people tell their stories in their own voice. There's different inflection. There's different emphasis. It just comes across so differently when you get to see, in this case, you know, with these events, you could actually see someone reading, but it's the same if you're just listening. And what I started doing with those events too was taking just a few moments with each reader and asking them a few follow-up questions. And I discovered that there was something really kind of magical about getting to ask a writer about her process of creating that story or maybe for an update medically where she was, you know, since writing that story. And so really the podcast is just a blown up version of that where I get to sit with each writer for a half hour and, you know, we get to hear their story and then hear 
the next part of that story. The next I chapter. love that's my favorite part. Like the liner notes were, <laughs> well, what's behind this other thing? Or can we take a little deeper dive on right. what you said in this essay? I love that. That's one of my favorite. That's the icing on the cake for me. <laughs> I think so, too. And it is another layer of vulnerability. You know, it's mm. one thing when you read a story that you very carefully crafted, you've edited, it's gone through, you know, my editing process, and it's out in the world as this kind of perfect little thing. And then to have someone read it and then to have me say, okay, but pull back that curtain and let mm. us in. It's it's a gift that these all these um, readers have been willing to do it over the last year. And I just have to say how brave they are. I've submitted a few pieces over the years to Wildfire, and I don't know that I would have the vulnerability or the, I don't know, <laughs> the strength to read it on the podcast. Like, have you had some people decline because of that? It's one thing to have it like in print in a magazine, but to have my face and my voice with the thing. I don't know. That's a different story. I think people are it brave is. who do it. <laughs> I think you're right. You know, I actually cannot think of a single person who has turned me down, but you're making me think of, you know, kind of the body positivity movement and how that plays a role in breast cancer. We almost could become convinced that the goal is for everyone to take their shirt off and be on Instagram or TikTok, you know, topless. But the truth is, is that is going to be a level of healing for some people. And that amount of visibility isn't going to ring true for someone else, which doesn't mean that they are any less positive in their body or healed in their body. And I actually think the same is true for reading your stories out loud or even publishing your stories. I don't want anyone to think that that that's the finish line. Like that has to be the goal to know if you are whole. It's, it's going to be different outlets for different people at different times. And so, Monica, you not feeling ready to read your story, and you may never feel ready to read your story, that I think is perfectly okay. And Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I know, I know it's okay, but I just admire, I, I just think it's another level of bravery. I admire people for sharing that because they're important. It's important because not everybody's going to sit and read the story so they, yes. can, they can listen to the story. Right. Well, and that's such a good point, too, is an, and another reason to do the podcast, too, is to just get these stories to mm. people in a medium that maybe they could do while walking, washing dishes, you know, mm -hmm. whatever they're doing in their life if they don't have an opportunity to curl up with a magazine. Because reading time is a luxury, especially if you have small kids, right? Yeah. So we all hear the finished product on the burn when we listen to it. But what happens to get to that point? What are, what's going on behind the scenes with that? <laughs> I love that you asked that. So first of all, it's a lot more work than I ever realized doing a podcast would be. I think that like everything in Wildfire, I've just, I've learned it on the go and learned it as I did it. And the podcast has been another one of those. I, I don't want to say challenge. It's just been another hill to climb. And so... I think the work that you do to help me prepare for this, and we've kind of evolved this over time, right? But one of the things that people probably don't realize is that one of the ways that we prepare for this is, Monica, you read each person's story 
into a, a voice recorder, probably on your phone, right? And mm-hmm. then you send me that file. And so I get to listen to you read the story before I also listen to the writer read her story live. And the reason that I do that is because, well, partially because I'm writing intros for every episode that we do. That stuff isn't scripted. I'm probably outing myself, or I should say it is scripted, and I'm outing myself by saying it's not off the cuff. But the questions are largely coming, you know, in real time. But I also think that it is really different to hear something versus read it. And so that's why I asked you a few months ago to start reading them because then I can hear the different emphasis, different parts of it land differently hearing it versus looking at it on the page. Yeah. yeah I, I always wonder how how that's going for you on your end because I know those little recordings are super raw. Like my dog's barking in the background. I'm having a visceral reaction sometimes to what I'm reading and you'll hear me sniffle or like, oh my God, or <laughs> you know, some <laughs> comments. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was interesting and people might want to hear your process there. Like, yeah, it's deeper than they think, maybe. <laughs> I think so. Well, and it's it's also goes to show, too, that every story that comes through Wildfire, whether it's here on the podcast or in the magazine, is being held by the two of us, as well as our colleagues, you know, behind the scenes, Emily, Angela, and our designers, Sally and Kim. Every one of us is holding each story in a slightly different way, depending on what our process is, you know, for it. and. Yeah. And it's landing for us because we are survivors too, right? So someone's experience in their story, like you said, might might bring you to tears. And that happens to me all the time too. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I like I like doing those recordings for you. I'm so glad. Well, shall we get into our truths yes. here? Yes. Okay. Okay. So truth number one, the mom thing. <laughs> The mom thing. I couldn't think of a better way to call this, to title this truth. And so let me tell you what I mean by the mom thing. So in the process of doing the magazine now for 38 issues, I have encountered a lot of people who have had their moms be part of their breast cancer experience in a way that you might not have if you were diagnosed 65, 75, 85. When you are diagnosed young, your mom, either literally or just in through memories of past events, is part of that process. And there are a whole lot of different types of moms out there. I have learned that there are some moms who show up amazingly in their daughter's breast cancer, either because they're just that type of person or because they've experienced breast cancer themselves, or maybe their own mother has had breast cancer, and they're just aligned to it, and they're there for it. And then there's some moms who don't show up as well. But why don't we start with an example of a really, really good mom? This Mm. is one of my favorite stories, my favorite episodes. This was episode 30, when we had Natalie Bello Silva on to read her story called Streetlight. And just to remind everyone, Natalie was diagnosed at 27 with stage two breast cancer. And in her story, she describes her mom becoming the anchor she needs. Once, when my mom was pressuring me with questions, I told her, please don't get your hopes up. My type of cancer is aggressive. We should not be looking for solutions. 
My mom looked at me straight in my eyes and said, if the cancer is aggressive, we will be aggressive as well. I stood there still and my heart racing and my hands sweaty, but this time it was because I had finally seen my streetlight. I had finally seen a glimpse of my mom's face passing the streetlight. It was the light in my darkness. It was finally here. It was time to start fighting. It was time to find my own calmness. It was time to stop being afraid of the dark and leaning in with all that I had. It was time to find against something that I could not see that I fear so much. <sighs> Chills, right? It makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. It does. I know when I first read that, if the cancer's aggressive, we'll be as aggressive as well. I remember reading that in the magazine production and then hearing her say it. It's like, what a, what a badass mom she has. <laughs> I know. Well, and I have admitted here on the podcast and in the magazine that my mom wasn't Natalie's mom. She was, she actually had passed away prior to my cancer, mm. but at other times in my life, she wasn't the cheerleader that I needed. And I learned to look elsewhere for that. But I love hearing a mom who is just ready to get not only in the ring with her daughter, but to also pump her up and, mm -hmm. and help her prepare mm -hmm. for that. And I think Natalie's mom is the kind of mom that everybody expects, that everybody's just going to have that default mom that's, you know, with you, your ride-or-die mom or whatever. But um, the, to me, that's an exception of, of, like, the really awesome mom. And then I think there's a whole spectrum of moms, <laughs> the way they show up for us, too. Mm -hmm. It's true. And I have a feeling that some moms don't know how they're going to react when their child has breast cancer and don't know which type they're going to be. Right. And something I've heard a lot in the cancer community, too, is sometimes the tables get turned when you reveal your diagnosis to, to your mother and you're finding yourself in a spot. This happened to me where my mom was very upset and I was like, I, I can't comfort you. You mm -hmm. need to comfort me, you know. And and that's kind of a hard conversation to have too. But it's like you can't you can't bring your your sadness about this and lay it on me. I I can't take that. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, I think that you've just set us up so well to go into our next guest or our next clip because we have had some people on the burn talk about that difficult relationship where you find yourself having to comfort someone, in this case, a mom, when you're facing your own cancer? And how do you, how do you do that? So this, no. this clip comes to us from Megan Claire Chase. And Megan was our guest in episode 24. That was called The Patient and Caregiver When Cancer Worlds Collide. And Megan Megs, as I love to call her, was diagnosed at 39 with lobular breast cancer after her mom also was diagnosed with cancer. So let's listen. In my mind, I can no longer be a caregiver because I was now a cancer patient myself, about to face some truly grueling treatments and battling for my own life. I thought my mother would be able to relate and help me. That wasn't the case. I drove us to all my chemo treatments and doctor appointments, and I continued to carry a lot of anger about that time, which she knows. I remember the first time I walked into the infusion center. 
mother and daughter cancer patients. I expected support. I expected my mother to show up and bring me comfort. Instead, we would often fight and get to the point where my infusion nurse would ask my mother to sit in the waiting room for a bit because my stress levels were rising dangerously. When I asked her why she refused to learn how to get to and from the Cancer Institute for my treatments, she said she needed me to tell her each time because she wasn't good with directions. Mm. So much truth, so much raw emotion in that. And that really resonates for me. What about you, Monica? Yeah, you know, just how like what she needed was like her mom to like squire her around to the different things you're always running off to at medical Mm -hmm. facilities for cancer, like a simple thing. And her mother couldn't ferry her around with that. And her mother gave her grief over that. And it was hard to hear it. Hard to read that, too. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things about being diagnosed on the younger side is we can find ourselves in this middle place of being both caregiver to a parent and experiencing our own um, our own cancer, and then having to discover where the support that we need is going to come from, if not from that parent. And I know one thing you and I have talked about a lot, Monica, is this idea of remothering ourselves or just mothering ourselves, yeah. I guess, and how essential that is, and how something like Meg's writing this essay is mothering yourself, right? Yes, yes. very much mothering yourself. And kind of like you said, mothering yourself too, it goes back to like you're you're almost forced to seek. Maybe you're forced to seek to find what what it is you need from other people and get it from other people too. Who did you get that kind of mother figure support from when, you know, your mom had been passed away for a while before you were Mm -hmm. diagnosed? Yeah. So I'm really lucky that I, my husband and I chose to create a multi-generational home with his parents. And this happened well before cancer. Happened actually a couple years. We started talking about it a couple years before I got pregnant. And we went into it with this idea that we would care for my in-laws as they aged. And then we thought, well, they'll, you know, help us out with childcare. And we had no idea that cancer was going to come in the in the interim there and so soon, you know. And so I was really lucky to have my mother-in-law here. I'm very close with her. Mm. My husband and I have been together since we were teens. And so she's been filling that role of mother for me for a long time. But it's interesting too because of this idea of mothers being something that's very core to me. When I was going through cancer myself, I created a council of mothers for my daughter because mm. I wasn't sure that I was going to 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 live out that treatment year. I didn't know what that was going to look like. And because of my own experience, I knew that it is possible to gather other mother figures around. And so I wanted to create that for my daughter. And even now, she still has these strong, powerful women around her that fill various roles for her. And I realize now how we all need that, right? Regardless of whether I'm physically here or not, she needs that from other people too. That's incredible that you formed the Council of Mothers. I love That's great. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, they feed me too, you know, they mother me too. Yeah. And 
It's so exhausting just going through cancer when you're the mother of a young child yourself, as we both were, and (laughs) needing some other maternal things that you're not getting from your biological mother for whatever reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's a hard truth, right? Yes, it is. Very hard. Well, let's turn to our next our next truth. Truth number two is fertility and infertility. And this is, again, a topic that is very prevalent in the younger cancer community, whether it's breast cancer or other cancers, that treatment puts us into, um, especially if we identify as female, puts us into medical menopause a lot of the time or forced menopause because of different diagnoses. You know, if your cancer is hormone fed, for me, it plunged me straight into menopause just by the nature of going through breast cancer treatment. So we wanted to bring to this podcast special, this idea of fertility and infertility and how both are affected by medical treatment. So our first example is Melanie Childers. Melanie was diagnosed at 34 with stage two hormone positive breast cancer. And she experienced the infertility that came from breast cancer in a slightly different way than some people. Some will double down and decide to push harder. But Melanie had a different uh, approach to it, which was to find acceptance, but not before it broke her heart. I'll let you listen to it now. Cancer didn't just take my breasts. It took my potential future family. It took the daydreams of what my children might look like. It took bedtime stories and irrepressible giggles. It took excited Christmas mornings and awkward first dates. So powerful, right? Yeah, the the grieving of things not yet to come that aren't going to come. Anticipatory exactly. grief. Anticipatory grief, exactly. And this idea that of what a child could represent in a family and then having cancer take that away. At another point in her essay, Melanie writes about how cancer came before her readiness for parenting came. And that line has also always really hit me hard. It's just those, those choices that get taken away is just another example of what cancer steals. Yeah, or just being forced to make a choice in a very, very small frame of time. Like, I know when I was diagnosed, I had had two miscarriages leading up, the year leading up. And my oncologist was like, well, we're going we're gonna to get your eggs right away. We're going to go get it, make embryos and freeze them. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> I know. Who knew it, that was going to be part yeah, of your breast cancer? And it was very time sensitive. Like, we have to do, where are you in your cycle? We need to do this MRI and all these other cancer things. And it was very stressful. And ultimately, I was 42 and I was diagnosed. And I, my marriage wasn't in a great spot. And so I just kind of had to make the decision. I'm not making embryos. <laughs> I'm just mm. not. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that it's like a hard sell <laughs> making these tough choices really quick that's unnerving about the experience too. Exactly. Well, and it's the juxtaposition of having to make decisions in a state of emergency Mm -hmm. for a future that you can't even picture. Yes, that you can't picture. And, you know, I still to this day don't feel like some of the younger people getting diagnosed are getting proper fertility counseling at Mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. I see big disparagements in that still. 
eight years into cancer land. I do too. It was one of the heartbreaks of my own experience. I, no one even talked to me about the potential for freezing eggs or anything really? like that. No. Wow. I wasn't talked to about it. Mm-mm. That's so like that's so different from what I just shared with you. Like my oncologist is like, let's freeze embryos now. <laughs> exactly. No, I I remember us having one very brief conversation and my husband and I saying we were interested in having a second. And and then nothing happened. Then I was in chemo and that was that. I think we all kind of crossed our fingers and hoped that my fertility would return. And it's been a long road of acceptance Ooh. that it hasn't. I'm so sorry. That's that's such a bummer to hear. Thank you, Monica. Well, do you want to talk about our next clip? Because we do have another aspect of, of this fertility coin. Yes. So I... I wanted to bring in this other story. There's lots of different ways to make families, you know, and we didn't want to only talk about the the robbery of fertility, right. but also this idea, we've kind of already touched on it, that sometimes all these questions come before you're ready or before you realize that you have strong feelings about wanting to become a mom. And our next clip comes from one of these writers. This is Megan Kalkari Campbell, and she writes in in her piece, When Cancer Clarifies, about she's, she's on the precipice of this child coming into her life that she didn't know she even wanted until cancer came. So she was diagnosed at 32 with stage two triple positive breast cancer. And as you'll hear now, she is writing directly to this unborn child. I didn't think about you. Not once, not ever. Well, maybe that's only partly true. I thought about you in such a way as to not think about you. I didn't want you, you see. It's not exactly the warm welcome you anticipated, and I'm not sure how this is going to work out. We never are. (laughs) I'm always blown away by her stunning candidness in that. I think that's where the essay begins right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right. And to admit that mm, that she wasn't sure, you know, yeah. about motherhood. And she goes on to describe how she became more sure, you know, as this this option, this choice was was being pulled away from her. And she talks about surrogacy too, which Mm -hmm. is, like I said, you know, there's a lot of different ways to build families after cancer. And sometimes it, you just need time, right? Time to let the dust settle and see what matters to you and your family. Yes. And what I also love about Megan's words too, is it's okay to feel that way. Like there's no shame in that. Maybe not knowing at that, when cancer came, that maybe you didn't want to be a mom. Like that's okay to say that. It's it's real. It's the truth. And and things can shift. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we've also, you know, we don't have any clips from them today, but we've also had stories of people who have been able to get pregnant afterward and mm-hmm. get back to plans that were laid before cancer and so happy for them as well. Yeah. Some of the, the rainbow baby stories and stuff yes. too. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've heard a lot of those. Thankfully, I've heard a lot of those. Those are mm-hmm. good ones. Absolutely. 
All right. So we have gone through two of our truths so far on our list of six truths. We've heard about the mom thing. We've gone into fertility and infertility. We are going to take a quick break here and hear a testimonial, and then we'll get into our next truth, which is mental health. Hi, my name is Ashley Doyle. I live on the Sunshine Coast in BC, Canada, and I was initially diagnosed with stage 2B breast cancer at age 28 in 2012. Around my 34th birthday, it was officially confirmed stage 4 in July 2017, and I learned I carry an inherited PALB2 mutation. I recently attended a free wildfire pop-up writing workshop for the young metastatic community. The workshop was really supportive as it was shared in such a calm, safe space. We could all take a moment to write and read where we're at and feel what has been heavy for us, all held by a community of others who could relate and be there for each other. I'm so very grateful to attend the kind, supportive group created by Wildfire. Thanks so much for the love, Ashley. Well, let's get into hard truth number three. And we're already kind of touching on it in every one of our hard truths, but this is the mental health aspect of a breast cancer diagnosis. And the reason that I wanted us to include it is because I think that we are doing a better job at being more open to talking about mental health and how it correlates with a physical diagnosis. I've done a whole issue, I've done several issues actually on the mental health aspect. And each time we do it, I'm so impressed with how vulnerable our writers are able to be with their own experiences of depression, of alienation, of just not really recognizing themselves or their brains in the aftermath. Yes. I, um, that's a, a big topic for me too. And yeah, it's very resonating. And I'm always deeply appreciated when people are willing to share their mental health stories because I know they're giving somebody some kind of healing or just knowing they're not alone and that it's okay to have these feelings and start working your way out of those feelings. Mm-hmm. It can be the arbiter, just hearing someone's story can be the arbiter of kickstarting getting yourself out of a bad spot. Yes. And I, before we, we hear from our reader, I just want to say that it's very, very normal for the time after active treatment ends or after your treatment has kind of settled into more of a routine if you're stage four. Like there's this time after the kind of the emergency of mm-hmm. the diagnosis And the active part, you know, where you're seeking out doctors and you're seeking out a treatment path, there's a time where it feels almost universal, where the dust settles and everyone looks around and is shell-shocked by what has happened. Absolutely. Like, and it's hard to explain that to newly diagnosed people. It's like, you're going to get through all the treatment things and figure these things out. It's when that stuff tempers down and your brain has more time to process the emotional end of things where, and I always tell them how I felt my last radiation treatment. I walked to my car in the parking lot and I just felt like a deer in the headlights. What next? What do I do now? How do I make sense of this? Exactly. Exactly. So our next clip is going to come to us from Jen Rosenbaum. And Jen was our writer and our reader back on episode 28 with the search to feel alive. Jen was diagnosed at 41 with stage 2B hormone-positive lobular breast cancer. And we'll take a listen. And then I heard the thought, the one that said, 
do them a favor, and end your life. The voice told me that I didn't have to suffer. If I ended my life, I wouldn't be sad anymore. I wouldn't have to face a life without breasts. The thoughts continued and got darker as time went on. To this day, I'm grateful to the other part of my brain that popped in and said to me, Jen, this isn't rational. Please do something. Reach out to someone. Don't do it. Oh my goodness. So indebted to Jen for being so open about this really scary time. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the the further further end of mental health when you're falling into a, a suicidal ideation place. I know I landed in that place after treatment. I know other people that have too. And it's a hard place to be. And you often hear people say to themselves and say to others, well, at least I'm alive. Right. And it's so minimizing. <laughs> it's really alienating. And I think it's hard because people don't know what to say to someone, you know, after their diagnosis. But this this kind of drumbeat that you should just be grateful to be alive, it, it comes, it does, but sometimes it doesn't come till after the the trauma is felt yeah. and the depression is there. And one of the reasons I love Jen's story is she she took us to that dark place and then to that voice saying, reach out for help yes. and find help. Mm-hmm. And and how different people find find themselves to getting to the starting point of beginning healing and getting out of the suicidal ideation places. So, so interesting. She just had her own inner voice. I spent some time sharing with a person that was basically a stranger to me. And somehow that pulled me out. And, and then you go on and things get, the new normal gets better. The new normal's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can make sense of things. And I know a lot of us do things within the cancer community, either seen or unseen, that help you make, like, that's your purpose now. It helps you make sense of what happened while this thing happened. So let me take this garbage and try to bring some kind of beauty to the world with that. Right, exactly. And some of that beauty is just in telling your story. So mm-hmm. someone else can know, you know, and our our next clip that I'm going to play is from someone who has been very, very transparent about what the aftermath of cancer has been like for her, in particular mentally. Well, I should say physically, too. She's done a beautiful job of showing herself physically. But Anna Krollman is who I'm talking about. And Anna Krollman has shared how the effects of PTSD have landed with her then and as she's moved away from it, as you said, Monica, like sometimes it just takes layers of time to help kind of soften those sharp edges and to help you take stock and and get right again. Yeah. And so, yeah, Anna talks about that. So Anna was diagnosed at stage two. She had triple positive breast cancer in her 20s. I believe she was 27. And the episode that she was in is called Combating Post-Cancer Depression. This was episode 12. Now looking back after two years of mental recovery, it's hard to believe I was ever in such pain. I'm happier now than I ever was pre-cancer with new avenues of purpose and joy in my life. Mm. I love that so much. I think that gives so much hope. (laughs) Right? It does. And 
and it just, I don't know, it really goes to show that sometimes it takes time. I mean, maybe it always takes time, even yeah. if it's just, you know, one day past hearing that terrible news, you know, one sleep on it and then another. And it's just this very slow process of moving slowly away from that. Yeah, it is. And I wish when I was first diagnosed that I had heard more people with Anna and Jen's stories and kind of had them filed in the back of my brain. That, all right eventually I'm going to love my life. Probably. I was just visiting with a friend yesterday who'd known me, who met me while I was in chemo. And we were just talking and I was like, I really love my life now. I'm so lucky. <laughs> and she knows that I was in a really, really bad place for a few years, a really bad place. So there's hope. There is Thanks hope. Thanks to Jen and Anna yeah. for, you know, keeping hope alive for those that mm -hmm. are out there struggling and and write about it exactly and and just let others see the process of how you dig out because i think we get really used to hearing cancer stories in the mainstream media that seem like you just immediately go from treatment to pumping your fist in the air and conquering mm -hmm. the world or mm -hmm. something. You know, that's the narrative that and it's an expectation. Yeah, it's an expectation yeah. like, ooh, now you're this badass warrior. <laughs> you beat cancer or you got through treatment or you're stable mm -hmm. now. You're so great. And inside you're like, you you would have done the same thing too. <laughs> Right. It's that feeling of like, well, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. You know, I just put my head down and did this. And so maybe there's also feelings of being a fraud, right? Everyone's looking to you to be that strong poster child. And you just feel like maybe like it doesn't fit. The mantle doesn't fit. But two, I know for me, I felt really, really bad and guilty that I got cancer at all. So how was I supposed to turn that into feeling like some kind of warrior or something? Yeah, I don't know. And I think that's interesting that you said you felt guilty about that. I felt a lot of shame in getting cancer so young. Like it was embarrassing. Like I was too young to get sick. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. All right. So Monica, I'm going to surprise our listeners, but you know this, that this is a long episode for us. So we are actually going to break here after our first three truths. We have been through uh, the mom thing now. We've been through fertility and infertility as well as mental health. We have three more truths, but we are going to stop here and make this a two-parter. And when we come back... When you hear us again, very shortly, we will get into the next three truths. Which are all kind of body related, right? I think so. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's going to be good. <laughs> I love these topics. All right. <laughs> well, I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to a very special episode of The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end to hear how to get your hands on a brand new printable journal companion to this podcast. Our producer is Bill Smith and our production assistant is me, Monica Haro. <laughs>
Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find our archives. There are now more than 38 issues in there. There's also no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story, and don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. And one more thing before you go. So in honor of this anniversary episode, I have prepared for you a printable journal companion. It is my favorite prompts from the last year of The Burn. So head on over to wildfirecommunity.org slash The Burn and download your printable journal today. Happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Take good care.